Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd also uh, like to thank uh, Gresham College for giving me the opportunity to um, explore this landscape theme in company. The, the lecture series is about the personality of English landscape scenery as it was cultivated in the art and writing of the 19th century. Uh, cultivated to the point where a fairly simple assemblage of certain rural motifs could be seen to amount almost to an image of England and Englishness on its own. And as I was preparing um, these lectures, <clears throat> I was conscious of the current Brexit climate uh, when Englishness um, has come into rather sharpened focus. Um, and I wonder if now in 2017, if we had to distill the character of English landscape scenery into a single iconic image, I wonder what it would look like. A century ago, this was the popular image of England, perhaps even of Britain. The landscape is stylized and distilled into simple components, rolling hills, worn smooth to make pasture and arable land accommodating for livestock and plough, fields neatly partitioned by hedgerows of uneven growth, cottages nestling in the folds and embowered by larger trees. There are formal affinities, too, between the natural and the man-made components. Thus, the softly rounded thatched roofs echo the rolling contours of the hills, and the sheltering trees billow gently like the clouds. All is harmony. There's just one human figure, just down there, the woman in the garden. But she's enough, perhaps, to strike the keynote. In effect, the whole landscape is feminized, with the cottage homes embosomed in the soft curves of the domesticated landscape. It is what used to be called home scenery. So where are the menfolk? Here they are. Theirs is now the responsibility to protect this precious national state, which has been written so eloquently into the landscape imagery. Your country's call. Does that mean your home countryside or your country England? The ambiguity is highly charged. To me, England is the country and the country is England, said Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin in 1924. By the time of the First World War, this image of thatched cottages, hedgerows, and patchwork fields could be iconized to denote the national identity. The ensemble is essentially drawn from the countryside imagery of southern England, but it's made to stand for the whole country. By the beginning of the 20th century, the concept of South Country, and that was mainly Kent, Surrey, Sussex, and Hampshire, have become very potent as a representation of the heart of England. 
And those phrases, the heart of England and the South Country, were the titles of books by the poet and essayist Edward Thomas, The Heart of England, published in 1906, and The South Country in 1909. Thomas's evocations of deepest England were written and published just a few years before war broke out. Thomas responded to the call of the recruitment poster. He signed up in 1915. While training in England, he was asked once what he was fighting for. Literally for this, he said, picking up a handful of earth. He was sent to France early in 1917, where he discovered a horrifically different landscape. And he was killed in action in April of that year. I'll be tracing the evolution of this iconic English landscape scenery in the work of some late 18th and 19th century painters and writers, principally in these three lectures, the picturesque tourists and theorists, Jane Austen, John Constable and John Clare, and Samuel Palmer. This is part of a larger personal study, which Richard mentioned in the introduction, uh, which will take the story on from Palmer to the cottage scenery paintings of Miles Burkett Foster and Helen Allingham and the writings of Richard Jeffries and associated landscape artists and writers up to the beginning of the 20th century. I'm starting, though, with Jane Austen. Through her novels, we can see how the popularised discourse of the picturesque was handled by different interest groups. And then I'll go on to discuss how the picturesque helped to raise national awareness of the distinctive character of English scenery. And I hope there'll be time for um, some discussion at the end. <clears throat> Here's a quotation that strikes some of the keynotes in this um, broad theme. It was a sweet view, sweet to the eye and the mind. English verdure, English culture, English comfort, seen under a sun bright without being oppressive. These are the sentiments of Jane Austen's Emma. Emma is viewing Donwell Abbey, the country estate of Mr Knightley, the gentlemanly character that she's eventually to marry. The landscape that she so approves is an index of the moral qualities of Englishness, as the repetition of English underlines. Comfort, controlled freedom, moderation. English culture here, I think, means the activity of human tending, as in the words agriculture, horticulture, but is also acquiring that broader anthropological sense of a group's or a nation's way of life and system of values. The situation of Mr Knightley's house and the character of the house itself all contribute to this reassuring sense of Englishness for Emma. The house is suitable, becoming, characteristic situation, low and sheltered, 
its ample gardens stretching down to meadows washed by a stream, of which the abbey, with all the old neglect of prospect, had scarcely a sight, and its abundance of timber in rows and avenues, which neither fashion nor extravagance had rooted up. The house was rambling and irregular, with many comfortable and one or two handsome rooms. It was just what it ought to be, and it looked what it was. The house and its land are manifestations of English naturalness and sincerity and a reflection of their owner. Mr. Knightley is a man of transparent integrity and unpretentiousness, and his old-fashioned gentlemanly values are externalised in his estate and home. The house has been allowed to grow over time in a quite natural, organic way to fulfil changing domestic functions, and it looked what it was. It's not an off-the-peg designer mansion, for example, in the fashionable Palladian style. The garden, likewise, resists fashionable tastes, preferring the old neglect of prospect instead of carefully landscaped vistas. And it's concerned with the husbanding of timber. Neither fashion nor extravagance has influenced the nightly estate. English landscape gardening tastes had long reacted against what was seen as the excesses of French formality and artifice, those huge straight avenues of Versailles, geometrical parterres and trees turned into topiary. The English aim was to free the garden to return closer to nature. Here is Horace Walpole in 1771, and uh, Walpole's name will come up in a number of contexts. He was a great arbiter of, of taste in the uh, late 18th century. Uh, Horace Walpole in 1771, describing the changes in modern English gardening, and I've highlighted some of the uh, salient words as Walpole presses his point. The gentle stream was taught to serpentize seemingly at its pleasure, and where discontinued by different levels, its course appeared to be concealed by thickets properly interspersed, and glittered again at a distance where it might be supposed naturally to arrive. Its borders were smoothed, but preserved their waving irregularity. A few trees scattered here and there on its edges sprinkled the tame bank that accompanied its meanders. The living landscape was chastened or polished, not transformed. Freedom was given to the forms of trees. They extended their branches unrestricted. And where any eminent oak or master beech had escaped maiming and survived the forest, bush and bramble was removed and all its honours were restored to distinguish and shade the plain. Note the strong libertarian agenda. The garden is organised to flourish in an unrestricted manner. This is managed naturalness, designer irregularity. Walpole is promoting the new style of gardening as an antidote to the high formal geometrical gardening practices in France and Holland, particularly France. The practice of constructing a nationalist aesthetic by caricaturing its loathed antithesis usually France, is an important part of the process of cultural self-definition 
and I'll be coming back to this um, later in this talk and in uh, next week's. The veneration of the natural, the irregular, and the indigenously long-established, and even the superannuated, these English values are carried into the picturesque aesthetic which so dominated tastes in landscape in Jane Austen's period. It's in her novels that we find some of the most trenchant and entertaining critiques of this new fashion for the picturesque. Although she has a liking for some of its ideas, and that, that complexity in, in her own attitudes is part of the interest. So we'll sample some of these as expressed by a number of her characters. In Sense and Sensibility, Edward Ferrers discusses tastes in landscape appreciation with Marianne Dashwood, the character marked as having an excessive sensibility. Edward is ironically defensive about his antipathy to picturesque tastes. Marianne, remember, I have no knowledge in the picturesque and I shall offend you by my ignorance and want of taste if we come to particulars. I shall call hills steep, which ought to be bold, surfaces strange and uncouth, which ought to be irregular and rugged, and distant objects out of sight, which ought to be only indistinct through the soft medium of a hazy atmosphere. Sense and Sensibility was written mostly in the 1790s, but not published until 1811. The 1790s was, as we'll see later in this lecture and next week's, the heyday of picturesque theorising and the fashion for displaying the new connoisseur vocabulary in appraising landscape. And that is what Edward is archly alluding to, bold, irregular and rugged, indistinct and so on. This is the jargon of the new aesthetic. It finds great attractions in a kind of rough, unkempt beauty. Edward continues... You must be satisfied with such admiration as I can honestly give. I call it a very fine country. The hills are steep, the woods seem full of fine timber, and the valley looks comfortable and snug, with rich meadows and several neat farmhouses scattered here and there. It exactly answers my idea of a fine country because it unites beauty with utility. And I dare say it is a picturesque one too because you admire it. I can easily believe it to be full of rocks and promontories, grey moss and brushwood, but these are all lost on me. I know nothing of the picturesque. Edward's aesthetic judgment is married to his moral and economic and social values. So a fine country has to be one that unites beauty with utility. The countryside and its farms and villages are there for human convenience. The woods are full of fine timber, i.e. they may look beautiful, but they're also going to provide the materials for building the villages and sustaining the British Navy. Likewise, the meadows are rich, lush pasture land or burgeoning with crops for food. The farmhouses are neat, and neatness is a symptom of efficiency and productivity. Note also that the valley commends itself to Edward because it is comfortable and snug. And that notion of comfort is to be very important in the evolving idea of English landscape personality. It was there in Emma's summarising view of Donwell and its setting, English comfort. 
So what are Marianne's picturesque interests in terms of favoured landscape components? They prioritise rocks, promontories, grey moss and brushwood. In other words, a repertoire of landscape components unproductive in terms of furnishing comfort and sustenance for living. Her inspiration is this kind of pictorial model of landscape, Salvatore Rosa. But this, for Edward, is anathema. I like a fine prospect, but not on picturesque principles. I do not like crooked, twisted, blasted trees. I admire them much more if they are tall, straight and flourishing. I do not like ruined, tattered cottages. I'm not fond of nettles or thistles or heath blossoms. I have more pleasure in a snug farmhouse than a watchtower, and a troop of tidy, happy villagers pleases me better than the finest banditti in the world. <laughs> oh dear, all right, concedes Marianne. It is very true, she said, that admiration of landscape scenery is become a mere jargon. Everybody pretends to feel and tries to describe with the taste and elegance of him who first defined what picturesque beauty was. I detest jargon of every kind, and sometimes I have kept my feelings to myself because I could find no language to describe them in but what was worn and hackneyed out of all sense and meaning. Marianne acknowledges that the picturesque is a new vogue that has generated its own jargon. She refers in that speech to the man who first defined what picturesque beauty was. And it's now time to meet him and his revolutionary new ideas about landscape and beauty. This is the Reverend William Gilpin. Jane Austen's own fondness for Gilpin is testified to by her brother Henry in his um, biographical notice of the author. He writes of her, she was a warm and judicious admirer of landscape, both in nature and on canvas. At a very early age, she was enamored of Gilpin on the picturesque. And she seldom changed her opinion, either on books or men. <laughs> William Gilpin was a clergyman, schoolmaster, writer and amateur painter. He was the author of several books on landscape appreciation in the 1780s and 90s. Uh, and each one of these was given the, the formula title, Observations on the Lakes, the Highlands, whatever, relative chiefly to picturesque beauty. In the summer of 1770, he took a boat journey down the River Wye from Ross to Chepstow. He wrote a journal of his tour, complete with pen and wash drawings of some of the scenes, and it circulated in manuscript for several years. It was published in 1782, Observations on the River Wye Relative Chiefly to Picturesque Beauty. It went through four editions by 1800. The Wye book formally launched picturesque tourism. Its text and illustrations guided the viewer on how to assess landscape scenery, its structure, distribution of masses, tonality, and so on. It turned the countryside into an aesthetic amenity. Here is how Gilpin introduces it. The following work proposes a new object of pursuit, that of not barely examining the face of a country, but of examining it by the rules of picturesque beauty that of not merely describing, 
but of adapting the description of natural scenery to the principles of artificial landscape and of opening the sources of those pleasures which are derived from the comparison. Or, as another tour writer put it so succinctly, the picturesque traveller reviews the scenery of nature and the rules of art with which he is already acquainted and in imagination adapts to this standard the scenery which he expects to behold. Gilpin started his boat journey at Ross on Wye. The manuscript shows how much he worried at the text as he worked out his criteria for what constituted picturesque beauty, to be distinguished from beauty more generally. What is beautiful in a picture is different from beauty in the open landscape. One of the first arresting views downriver from Ross was Goodridge Castle. And here is Gilpin commenting. This view, which is one of the grandest on the river, I should not scruple to call correctly picturesque, which is seldom the character of a purely natural scene. Nature is always great in design, but is seldom so correct in composition as to produce an harmonious whole. Either the foreground or the background is disproportioned, or some awkward line runs across the piece, or a tree is ill-placed. So Gilpin is taking nature to task for not achieving the proper kind of composition. You can see his sort of schoolmasterly background. The point is that, as Gilpin remarks, the painter who adheres to the composition of nature will rarely make a good picture. So how do you go about correcting nature? And after all, correcting nature was in some sense the activity of the landscape gardeners for the previous uh, quarter century. The picturesque artist may obtain views of such parts of nature as with the addition of a few trees or a little alteration in the foreground, which is a liberty that must always be allowed, may be adapted to his rules, though he is rarely so fortunate as to find a landscape completely satisfactory to him. So if, for example, you come across a beautiful view that has all the right ingredients except the regulation foreground framing tree or two, then you just add them to your drawing. Gilpin taught the British to look at their landscapes critically with a concern for the scenery's special character as well as its artistic potential. His ideas of ideal picturesque landscape composition derive principally from the paintings of the 17th century artist Claude Lorraine. And these two examples up on the screen from Claude's Narcissus landscape and Gilpin's landscape composition illustrate the influence. The framing side screen trees, the darkened foreground, and then the more brightly lit middle distance with an architectural feature and the background melting into the sky. And this kind of structural orthodoxy became part of the tourist's viewfinder mindset. In his other book, Gilpin gave meticulous advice on the minutiae of picturesque organisation, such as how to group sheep and cows in a landscape. Here he is again. Two sheep or cows will combine very well, or three. 
If you increase the group beyond three, one or more in proportion should be a little detached. This detachment prevents heaviness and adds variety. It is the same principle applied to cattle, which we before applied to mountains. <laughs> and people, anything. This kind of fastidiousness was mocked by some of Gilpin's contemporaries, not least Jane Austen. In Pride and Prejudice, in chapter 10, there's a scene in which Elizabeth has been invited to join a group of three for a walk. She politely declines and, in doing so, invokes Gilpin's principles. <laughs> this is what she says. No, no, stay where you are. You are charmingly grouped and appear to uncommon advantage. The picturesque would be spoilt by admitting a fourth. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Gilpin had travelled across to the Wye from Kingston in Surrey, and he has some brief comments on the countryside en route. Here's one of particular interest in view of the discussion earlier about the criteria for picturesque beauty and whether or not utility should have some part in it. He's come into the Cotswolds, and he sees the cottages of the spinners and weavers dotting the hillsides and their cloths exposed on drying lines. And he's, he's unhappy about this. Many of these valleys, he writes, are greatly injured in the picturesque light by becoming scenes of habitation and industry. A cottage, a mill, or a hamlet among trees may often add beauty to a rural scene. But when houses are scattered through every part, the moral sense can never make a convert of the picturesque eye. This is a key statement in its implications. It expresses the incompatibility of the moral and picturesque senses. Jane Austen's sensible characters deplore the picturesque when it's taken to such extremes that comfort, utility and social morality have to be sacrificed to picturesque pleasures. However, the picturesque as it develops over this period, 1780s, 1790s, strays further and further from utility as a criterion. It's increasingly drawn to scenes of poverty and decay, partially ruined people as well as ruined buildings. It finds gypsies and beggars aesthetically attractive. Um, I'm very fond of this uh, watercolour by Rowlandson, um, particularly the tangle of gazes between the various groups. The um, gentlefolk on the left, from, straight from Jane Austen's world, are coming as tourists to look at the crumbling abbey remains and the village uh, with its uh, thatched cottages. The village probably built with um, stones from the, the ruined abbey, recycling them for, for their own dwellings. Um, I suspect that the gentleman uh, on the left there with his hand raised might be pointing to the, the picturesquely ornamental old man sitting on a stone and hoping he's going to stay there because he's part of the whole ruin ensemble. <laughs> um, and the poor, the, the village poor folk, the, the women and children over on the left are gazing at the, at the tourists. So this kind of circular set of gazes um, as these, these two worlds seem to come further and further apart under the influence of the picturesque. This separation of um, the moral and picturesque. In another notorious statement, 
Gilpin argued as follows, and this is from his observations um, uh, on the lakes and mountains of Cumberland and Wales. Moral and picturesque ideas, he writes, do not always coincide. In a moral light, cultivation in all its parts is pleasing. The hedge and the furrow, the waving cornfield and the ripened sheaf. But all these, the picturesque eye in quest of scenes of grandeur and beauty looks at with disgust. It ranges after nature, untamed by art and bursting wildly into all its irregular forms. It is thus also in the introduction of figures. In a moral view, the industrious mechanic is a more pleasing object than the loitering peasant. In a picturesque light, it is otherwise. The picturesque launched itself in an oppositional exclusionist frame of mind in order to establish its priorities clearly and even stridently. Picturesque beauty has nothing to do with utility or with comfort, almost the reverse. But as the picturesque develops through the 19th century, and I'll be tracking it in, in later lectures, and during that time is contested and remodeled again and again, the tastes it initially stimulated for the rough and the irregular and the wild and the natural, and its stance of formalist amorality, all these are gradually moderated, and it becomes reconciled with the more comfortable and morally concerned criteria championed by those such as Edward Ferrers. And I think that um, rather harsh amorality, separation of, of the moral from the picturesque, that harsh amorality, looking at surfaces only and responding to formal issues such as composition and so on, um, couldn't long withstand uh, changes in Victorian culture, um, a kind of liberal humanism in Victorian culture. Ruskin, uh, for one, was um, uh, very hostile to the old-fashioned formalist, uh, heartless picturesque, as he called it, and tried to recondition the picturesque by um, distinguishing what he called the, the lower picturesque, the heartless picturesque, and the Turnerian picturesque, because Turner's picturesque, he argues, has much more heart, much more compassion in it. But this, I think, is uh, the essential line of development, this rapprochement or gradual reconciliation. Uh, uh, it's essential in, in the evolution of taste for English scenery through the Victorian period. A compromise between control and natural freedoms, between design and accident, between cultivation and the wild. On this issue, the picturesque uh, of, of the picturesque seeming to anaesthetize all landscape responses apart from the formalist one, I'll give one more episode from Gilpin's Y tour. On the second day of his boat journey, Gilpin arrives at Tintin Abbey and assesses its picturesque credentials. The majestic ruins, unfortunately, don't come up to scratch. <laughs> a quote, a number of gable ends hurt the eye with their regularity and disgusted by the vulgarity of their shape. A mallet judiciously used, <laughs> but who durst use it, might be of service in fracturing some of them. Um, the, only, the only case I know where somebody did actually take a mallet or something similar 
um, to uh, some uh, old buildings in order to roughen up the, the, the uh, too rigid geometry was at um, Scotney Castle when the, the Hussey family moved from the old uh, 17th century um, uh, building down by the, the lake up to a newly built um, mansion in the early 19th century. Um, and beside that mansion, they built a, a bastion, a kind of viewing bastion, Belvedere bastion, for which they could look down on their old quarters. I think there was a 14th century round tower by the lake and then a 17th century wing attached to it. And, and, and um, I think Hussey got his, his gardener to smash the, the wing about a bit, to roughen it up so that it would uh, look more picturesquely irregular and probably be more hospitable to um, odds and ends of plants and moss um, to, to form on it. Um, the rigidly straight lines of the gable ends here offend the picturesque eye. Nature abhors a straight line, the landscape designer William Kent is reported to have said. Nature abhors a straight line. Irregularity, as we've seen, is one of the hallmarks of the picturesque. Variety, roughness, and irregularity. The hand of time, or the hand of mallet-wielding vandals, can convert monumental buildings into picturesque ruins to decorate the landscape. Among the artistic vandals we should be particularly grateful to, in this respect, are Oliver Cromwell and Henry VIII. <laughs> Here is Gilpin. What share of picturesque genius Cromwell might have, I know not. Certain it is, however, that no man since Henry VIII has contributed more to adorn this country with picturesque ruins. <laughs> the difference between these two masters lay chiefly in the style of ruins in which they composed. Henry adorned his landscapes with the ruins of abbeys, Cromwell with those of castles. I have seen many pieces by this master executed in a very grand style, but seldom a finer monument to his masterly hand than this. He's talking about Scalaby Castle, Cumberland. He has rent the tower and demolished two of its sides. The edges of the other two he has shattered into broken lines. Burst of applause. <laughs> um, Scalaby Castle in Cumberland was where Gilpin was, was born and brought up. These inspired picturesque vandals helped in the cause of promoting native architectural adornments in the landscape, as opposed to classical imports. Egyptian and Grecian temples in the English countryside or parkland are increasingly regarded as a foreign nonsense. And this is a point made by a slightly later picturesque theorist, Richard Payne Knight, in his didactic poem, The Landscape of 1794. No decoration should we introduce that has not first been naturalized by use, such as our ruined castles and abbeys. To recap, Gilpin had started a fashion that was to spread throughout the country and in doing so, he drew attention to the components and aesthetic value of British scenery. These new interests filtered into high and popular culture, Jane Austen's fiction, for example, stimulating widespread curiosity about the character, particularly of native English scenery, ways of analyzing and talking about it, as well as representing it in paint and words. We need now to take account of the fact that this surge in interest 
happened at a peculiarly apposite time. The wars with France from 1793, more or less through to 1815, i.e. most of Jane Austen's career, closed the continent to English tourists and helped to force attention inwards. It accelerated a nationalistic impatience with the conventional neglect of English scenery. And that is what I would like to look at now, the context for the revaluation of English scenery. Here's one tourist in 1773 traveling in the Lake District. Whenever I have read the descriptions given by travelers of foreign countries in which their beauties and antiquities were lavishly praised, I've always regretted a neglect which has long attended the delightful scenes at home. Sentiments like this became more and more common over the next two decades. Rising nationalism had followed imperial conquests abroad in the mid-18th century, and the huge expansion of trade and influence fueled a call in England for increased attention to native local assets and a raising of the profile of national identity. Politics and aesthetics became closely linked. Those English innovations in landscape gardening, which I mentioned earlier in this talk, where natural freedoms should be exercised in the management of uh, uh, natural freedoms should be exercised in the management of landscape features, were sometimes seen as a horticultural analogy to the state of the nation. And this was conspicuous in Horace Walpole's writings. And I'm quoting from uh, some notes that he wrote to um, a volume of satirical poems by uh, a writer on gardens, William Mason. And this is about 1780s. The reason why taste in gardening, he writes, was never discovered before the present century is that it was the result of all the happy combinations of an empire of free men, an empire founded by trade, not by a military and conquering spirit, maintained by the valor of independent property, enjoying long tranquility after virtuous struggle, and employing its opulence and good sense on the refinement of rational pleasure. The English taste in gardening is thus the growth of the English constitution. In 1795, the landscape gardener Humphrey Repton joined the debate. I quote, the neatness, simplicity, and elegance of English gardening have acquired the approbation of the present century as the happy medium betwixt the wildness of nature and the stiffness of art, in the same manner as the English constitution is the happy medium between the liberty of savages and the restraint of despotic government. And of course, this is, uh, writing this in, this in 1795, in the, uh, the long shadow cast by the French Revolution and the reign of terror. And he went on to praise the benefits of these middle degrees betwixt extremes. The picturesque flourishes in that oscillation betwixt extremes. And as I've suggested, arrives at a partial reconciliation to construct something distinctive in the aesthetics of English scenery. The raising of the status of British and particularly English scenery was part and parcel of a broader review of what constituted English national identity in the late 18th century. <clears throat> English verdure, English comfort, English culture. What is this Englishness? Englishness had for some time 
been defining itself as everything more or less that was antithetical to perceived French character, sharpened, of course, in the last decade or so by the reactions to the French Revolution and the war with France. Edmund Burke wrote in 1793, everything we have done is in the style of hostility to France as a nation. The stereotypical French character was seen by the English as effete or effeminate, deceitful, given to artifice, and morally frivolous. Uh, he's a broad brush. <laughs> Antithetically, English national identity was constructed as manly, sincere, natural, and morally earnest. Mr. Knightley is tailor-made as an exemplar of these essentialized English virtues. And I think you may well hear more from Janet Todd uh, in, a, in a lecture coming up soon on Jane Austen and patriotism. There is a, there is a subtle nationalistic um, agenda uh, in, in Jane Austen. Um, so Knightley is an example of these essentialized English virtues. Um, he's uh, its gentlemanly version, just as uh, John Bull is its bluff middle-class exemplar. The historian Gerald Newman has written on this late 18th century English nationalism and its connection with aesthetics. The increasing primitivism of contemporary literature was the natural consequence of rising anti-aristocratic feeling and the propagation very often through the convenient and historically appropriate device of anti-French oppositions of a supposedly English system of morality and aesthetics a system with distinct social as well as national orientations, calculated to confront French supremacy, abase the Frenchified great, and glorify the British many as the true source of natural, national virtue. The aesthetic revolution was an integral part of a still larger nationalist revolution. Typical of this culturally competitive spirit given the tyrannical dominance of foreign models of landscape beauty, particularly Italian, but also French, is um, Henry Wyndham, um, the writer of A Gentleman's Tour Through Monmouthshire and Wales, 1775. Here's what he said about the scenery he traveled through. This place would afford a charming retreat for a painter, delighting in romantic nature as its environs abound with scenes every way picturesque. Woody hills, naked mountains, rocky rivers, foaming cataracts, transparent lakes, ruined castles catch the eye on every side of the sequestered spot, which seems to want nothing but fine weather and a serene sky to afford as rich studies as the neighbourhood of Tivoli or Frascati. Increasingly, travellers in Britain were asking why the beauties of their own country were so habitually compared unfavourably with the landscapes of Italy as immortalized in the canvases of Claude. Hybrid landscape paintings became popular, those in which a Claudian idiom was grafted onto British topography, as in John Varley's much copied North Wales view. Wyndham remarked that the only thing missing from British scenery was fine weather and a serene sky. And so the painter can add it. And um, devoted though I am to Wales, that sky looks a bit improbable uh, for North Wales, um, and the Mediterranean pines even more improbable. <laughs> but why classicise British scenery in this way? It seems as foolishly incongruous as constructing classical temples or Chinese bridges in one's garden. 
If you have to mediate English scenery through another well-established cultural idiom, is there no alternative, a more appropriate landscape painting tradition? There was indeed, and one picturesque theorist pointed it out. This is Richard Payne Knight again. <laughs> Scarcely any parts of our island are capable of affording the compositions of Salvatore Rosa, Claude, and the Poussins. And only the most picturesque parts, those of Ricedale, Bergham, and Pinaka. But those of Hobbema, Vatelo, and Van der Velde are to be obtained everywhere. This comment, made in 1794, is almost exactly around the time when, as we'll see next week, the young John Constable was learning to sketch Suffolk scenery precisely in the style of Vatelou. But there was one persistent problem with trying to promote the landscape example of the Dutch as a more appropriate idiom for tackling English scenery, and that was the great arbiter of national art, the Royal Academy, founded in 1768. The Academy had long been institutionally contemptuous of Dutch landscape painting, and so Constable, of course, was to suffer uh, in terms of his uh, dealings with the, the Royal Academy as a result of the kind of idiom in which he painted. So the habit of classicizing English scenery in the high Claudian manner held sway, even though, as Gainsborough remarked, with regard to real views from nature in this country, he, Gainsborough, has never seen any place that affords a subject equal to the poorest imitations of Gaspar or Claude. Horace Walpole, in 1762, called for a school of British landscape painters. In a country so profusely beautified, he writes, with the amenities of nature, it is extraordinary that we have produced so few good painters of landscape. Our ever-verdant lawns, remember Jane Austen's English verdure, rich vales, fields of haycocks and hop grounds are neglected as homely and familiar subjects. The latter, the hop grounds, which I never saw painted, are very picturesque particularly in the season of gathering, when some tendrils are ambitiously climbing and others dangling in natural festoons. As if responding to such calls, the artist Paul Sandby begins in the next few years to issue sets of aquatints of British scenery in the Virtuosi's Museum. By 1782, the year when Gilpin's Y Tour was published, the poet and literary critic Joseph Wharton could record that the celebration of local scenery had at last really got underway. It is only within a few years, he writes, that the picturesque scenes of our own country, our lakes, mountains, cascades, caverns and castles, have been visited and described. And little by little, even our troublesome skies were converted into a national asset. Joseph Pott, in his essay on landscape painting, 1782 again, remarked, we have a great advantage over Italy in the great variety and beauty of our northern skies, the forms of which are often so lovely and magnificent where so much action is seen in the rolling of the clouds. So increasingly, the distinctive features of English landscape and climate are promoted no longer as poor cousins of Mediterranean scenery, but as distinctive native attractions. And these required a new set of aesthetic lenses for their appreciation. One of these lenses was the picturesque. Rich cloudscapes quickly become a national asset. Another is the greater density in our atmosphere. 
This certainly prevents our having luminously clear Claudian vistas, but it offers beautiful effects for the watercolorist's washes. Gilpin praised the moisture and vapory heaviness of our atmosphere, which produces the rich verdure of our lawns. Jane Austen's English verdure. And where Edward Ferrers had mocked the picturesque connoisseur's preference for seeing objects made indistinct through the soft medium of a hazy atmosphere, it was the effects on landscape of that atmosphere that increasingly won the attention of painters and tourists around the turn of the century, notably the young Turner and Thomas Girton. Gilpin's comment on the English atmosphere made in his 1786 tour of the Lake District is part of a longer sequence of paragraphs extolling the peculiar natural aesthetic advantages of English landscape. And to close with, I want to pay particular attention to these. And I will read from <coughs> his book on the observations on the lakes and mountains of Cumberland. From whatever cause it proceeds, certain I believe it is that this country exceeds most country countries in the variety of its picturesque beauties. I should not wish to speak merely as an Englishman. The suffrages of many travellers and foreigners of taste, I doubt not, might be adduced. In some or other of the particular species of landscape, it may probably be excelled. Switzerland may perhaps succeed it in the beauty of its wooded valleys, Germany in its river views, and Italy in its lake scenes. But if it yield to some of these countries in particular beauties, I should suppose that on the whole, it transcends them all. It exhibits perhaps more variety of hill and dale and level ground than is anywhere to be seen in so small a compass. Its rivers assume every character, diffusive, winding, and rapid. Its estuaries and coast views are varied, of course, from the form and rockiness of its shores. Its mountains and lakes, though they cannot perhaps rival, as I have just observed, some of the choice lakes of Italy, about Tivoli especially, where the most perfect models of this kind of landscape are said to be presented, yet in variety, I presume, they are equal to the lake scenery of any other country. The keynote, again and again, is variety, and the fact that this variety is concentrated in such small compass. He argues that England has small-scale versions of all the great and famous scenic attractions of Europe. But here is another characteristic of the native landscape, coming into focus really for, for the first time. The distinctive patterns of mixed woodland, hedges and fields, which are peculiar to English scenery. <clears throat> but besides the variety of its beauties, in some or other of which it may be rivaled, it possesses some beauties which are peculiar to itself. One of these peculiar features arises from the intermixture of wood and cultivation which is found oftener in English, English landscape than in the landscape of other countries. Trees grow in detached woods in other countries, and cultivation occupies vast, unbounded common fields. But in England, the custom of dividing property by hedges and of planting hedge rows so universally prevails that almost wherever you have cultivation, there also you have wood. Now, although this regular intermixture produces often deformity on the nearer grounds, yet at a distance it is the source of great beauty. On the spot, no doubt, and even in the first distances, foreground, the marks of the spade and the plough, the hedge and the ditch, hedgerow trees, square divisions of property, are disgusting in a high degree. But when all these regular forms are softened by distance, when hedgerow trees begin to... Uh, hedgerow trees 
begin to unite and lengthen into streets along the horizon, when farmhouses and ordinary buildings lose all their vulgarity of shape and are scattered about in formless spots through the several parts of a distance, it is inconceivable what richness and beauty this mass of deformity, when melted together, adds to landscape. Thus, English landscape affords a species of rich distance which is rarely to be found in any other country. And as if this weren't enough, uh, there is for the picturesque connoisseur a special advantage. You have likewise, from this intermixture of wood and cultivation, the advantage of being sure to find a tree or two on the foreground to adorn any beautiful view you may meet with in the distance. So let me finish recap by recapping some of the main themes emerging now at the start of the 19th century. We witness antagonisms between those who favour domesticated and cultivated landscape and those who are drawn to wilder scenery. We're aware of the growing taste promoted by the picturesque for freedom and irregularity in landscape views. There is now an explicit relish for English verdure, for the softer, denser atmosphere in English landscape distances, for those features absent from Claudian landscape idylls. There's increasing recognition that England has a uniquely concentrated variety of different scenery within a small compass. And the characteristic combination in English scenery of closely juxtaposed mixed cultivation and wilder landscapes of reassuring comfort side by side with the stimulus of wilder, freer natural forms, all contained within a single view. Remember that troublesome incompatibility between moral and picturesque responses mentioned earlier. The kind of scenery Gilpin is reviewing, as typical of English landscape, appears to reconcile that incompatibility under the umbrella of variety and contrast. Gilpin's picturesque arrives in the last third of the 18th century at a time when English nationalism was particularly intense, when English landscape gardening had asserted a particular kind of patriotic naturalism. As picturesque theory developed in the 1790s and the European continent closed to English tourists, English landscape aesthetics, for decades dominated by the new Royal Academy, shed some of its original Claudian dependency. Gainsborough's impact, as well as the popularity of Dutch landscapes, were very significant in this respect and opened the way to Constable's celebrations of English scenery. And these are changes that we'll continue to explore in the next lecture. Thank you. Thank you.